Thank you for that. That was beautiful. That was awesome. All right. Well, we're uh, we're not going to have children's church this morning. Um, I'm going to preach a message this morning, but be patient because we do have something special for the kids planned after the service. So if you guys are good, there's uh, something special for you uh, that we have planned, and uh, I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. I'm sure most of you already know what's over there, so <laughs> you can't get anything by these kids today. So, All right, again, uh, there is a handout this morning in your bulletin. If you have that, um, you'll see that we are uh, basically going to finish up what we were hoping to do last week, and uh, we were going to have in our uh, the fourth part, I put a little four-part series that I did for Christmas this year, and uh, we're going to look at the birth of our Savior, uh, the culmination of all that we've been leading up to here this morning. So uh, let's go ahead and open in a, word, a prayer, and we'll dive right into our text this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you again for this opportunity to preach your word. Uh, thank you for the truth of your word, for its power, its might. Thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, the precious gift that uh, you gave to us, Father, and uh, all we have to do is receive it. All we have to do is reach out and take that gift and receive it in our hearts. And, uh, and then, Father, uh, we just let the Holy Spirit take over from there. And so, Father, again, just guide us, direct us. I pray, Father, that uh, this morning's message will bring honor and glory to you, that you will receive all the praise for it, Father. Uh, this is your message, not mine. And uh, we just want you... Uh, honored and glorified through everything that we do in this church. We pray now that you will be uh, blessed through the message. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, Luke chapter 2. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Uh, we'll be reading uh, down through verse 7, starting in verse 1. The Bible says, Then it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made by Cyrenius, uh, when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one uh, into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto a city, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. <clears throat> and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. So let's set the stage this morning. Uh, the, the four messages that I preached earlier uh, throughout the month of Dece uh, December uh, we were learning some things. We were setting the stage really for where we are today. Remember, uh, in this time of history, that God has been silent for hundreds of years. There's been no word from God, no prophets, and uh, God has been silent. And then along comes the angel Gabriel. He comes along on the scene with a message from God. God doesn't use a, a prophet so much this time as an actual angel that he sends forth. And who's he send him to first? He sends him to Zacharias. Uh, you know, he, he sends him there to 
tells Zacharias in the temple that you're going to have a son and you're going to name him John. And we learned that that was John the Baptist who would come and proclaim to all the world their coming Messiah. Then, of course, uh, this angel Gabriel ends up going to a young virgin whom we know as Mary. And he tells Mary, you are blessed among women. And you are going to carry a child. You are, you are going to carry uh, the Son of God. You're going to carry the great I Am, as we just heard about. right? And, and, and tells her, and, and, and of course she doesn't doubt it, but she asks, how can this be, being that I'm, I know not a man. I've never known a man. I'm a virgin. And so we see the miracle laid before us in that uh, Mary is going to uh, be with child because of the Holy Spirit, not through a man. Remember, uh, and, and, so, uh, and then she's told that they will name him Jesus. And what did we learn about that name, Jesus? We know that in the Greek, it means, um, it means uh, Jehovah saves, right? Um, Jehovah, or I'm sorry, Jehovah is salvation, or Jehovah saves. Jehovah is salvation. So this is all important because it's been leading up uh, to this point. There's been this 400-plus years, I think, of, of silence. Um, but we understand that even though God has been silent for hundreds of years, ultimately he's been busy. He's been busy laying the groundwork and preparing the world and trying to prepare a chosen people for their coming Messiah, for the Savior of the world, right? This has all been prophetic. You know, all this stuff has been foretold in the Old Testament. And it's all prophetic. And its purpose was so that the Jewish people would recognize their Messiah when He came. I mean, that's the whole idea. That they would recognize their Messiah when He came. <clears throat> Isaiah prophesied that the Christ would be born of a virgin, and would be called Emmanuel. We see this in Isaiah 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. <clears throat> we also see the prophet Micah. Also, uh, hundreds of years before, states uh, in Micah uh, 5, verse 2, he tells us where the Messiah would be born. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. That's the foretelling of Jesus coming to Bethlehem, where he would be born. Born of a virgin. All the signs are there for the the people of Israel, to see their coming Messiah. Now, remember, we learned in, in the very first message I preached, I set the stage that what Luke was doing was, he was preparing to write the book of Luke. Uh, he, was, he was getting uh, all of his... Uh, he was doing research, right? He was, he was talking to eyewitnesses. He was preparing to be used of God to, to write the book of Luke. And he prepared this book as a historical fact. That's what we can look at. It's historical fact. These are, these are not just stories or fables. It is truth. And it is all truth. 
This is the greatest historical event in all of human history because it is God's way of reaching out to mankind to offer a way of salvation through his unending mercy. Unending mercy. Never forget that God is always at work even when we don't see what he's actually doing. Just because we don't see something going on doesn't mean God isn't working or God isn't hearing us or doing something. So my challenge to you this morning is while it is clear that most of the Jewish people didn't recognize their Messiah, the question for you this morning is, have you recognized the birth of our Savior? Have you recognized the birth of our Savior? This morning I want you to notice with me three significant details from our text. Uh, And the first detail we're going to look at is a prophetic order. A prophetic order. In verse 1 it says, And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world uh, should be taxed. So every 14 years, uh, Rome, uh, in order to plan for military assignments and to know how much to tax the people, Rome would conduct a census. And this is the decree that we see here being made uh, here in, ver- in verse 1 by Caesar Augustus. And what I want you to see is that what about this prophetic order is what it causes. It causes an unavoidable circumstance. An unavoidable circumstance. I think... Uh, I think we can all relate to what it's like or what we all think of taxes, right? Tax season is not a fun time. Nobody likes taxes. All we ever hear is the two things we can count on in this world are death and taxes, right? Well, we can count on Jesus. So there's more than that. But we don't like taxes. But understand that there's an unavoidable circumstance in this. <clears throat> taxes are an unavoidable circumstance for us. But Um, Maybe we shouldn't complain so much when you consider that uh, Joseph had to travel nearly nearly 100 miles with his wife, who was great with child, to go to perform this census. He had to go back to his birthplace in order uh, for the census to be conducted and for them to... uh, to get the information they needed regarding taxes. So to put that in perspective, that would be like, here it is, we're going into tax season. That would be like my son-in-law having to go back to Ohio with my daughter right now. Just to do a census for taxes. I'm thankful that at least if I have to pay taxes, uh, I don't have to travel somewhere differently to register for it. I can just stay right here in my home state of Montana and take care of that. So it's an unavoidable circumstance, and that's what happens. We, we see unavoidable circumstances that come into our lives. And, that, uh, and, and you know, Joseph, uh, being, being out of the lineage of David, and had to go down to Bethlehem to register for this census. And this is clearly an unavoidable circumstance in, uh, for him. Uh, it's important to note, though, that while this is an un, uh, unavoidable circumstance, and we have many of them in our own life, that we must re- remember that God orchestrates these types of circumstances in our life. Uh, God, it, he's the one orchestrating this one right now in Joseph and Mary's life. And, and so uh, he's in control, uh, not Caesar Augustus. And so we see that uh, these or- or they're orchestrated by him, and we must not forget that while God is orchestrating him, and we might be feel inconvenienced, we know that God will get us through because He's always faithful to get us through whatever circumstances may arise 
in our life. We can count on God. And we can see many different examples in Scripture of this very thing that I'm talking about. Uh, how about the life of Joseph? Do you think that, you know, here Joseph was having dreams and he was telling his brothers, you know, hey, uh, you know, he tells them about these dreams and the, 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 the brothers pick up on the dream that, oh, you know, these uh, corn stalks all bowing to this other one, that's us bowing to you, right? You think we're going to bow to you someday? Are you kidding me? And then even talks about the sun, the moon, and the stars, and mom and dad getting involved in this and saying, when do you think we're going to bow down to you? And here's this story. And so uh, the boys uh, see their brother one day coming to check in on him because dad sent him out to check on him. And the boys think to themselves, uh, we'll show him. We'll show him. We'll, we'll, and what do they ultimately do? They sell him into slavery. They sell him into slavery. And uh, do you think it caught God off guard? Do you think he had to start re redoing his whole plan for Joseph's life because the brothers sold their younger brother Joseph into slavery? And then Potiphar throws another wrench in it by throwing him into prison? Hey, man, I'm trying to get this guy to be powerful, and, and you guys keep taking him further and further down. No, God isn't taken by surprise. It was all used of God. It was all to prepare Joseph to be the leader that he would ultimately become. That's why he went through what he went through. God was preparing him. You know, and, you know, the brothers, well, remember what happens is they come to their, after the dad dies, the brothers start panicking and thinking, what's going to happen to us now? Joseph, dad's not here to keep Joseph in line. Joseph's going to kill us. And Joseph says, you know, he tells them, who am I, God? I'm not God. He said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, to save much people alive, to save much people alive. How about the life of Esther? The life of Esther is another one that we can look at. Here's this young woman who is all of a sudden just thrown in, is chosen by the king of the land to become uh, the queen of the Medes and the Persians. And she becomes this new queen uh, because Vashti wasn't obedient to her husband, to the king. And they take care of that. And along comes Esther. And then Mordecai comes to Esther and says, you have to go before the king because our people are about to be destroyed. The Jewish people, the Hebrew nation, is there's a plot to destroy us all. Haman's evil plot. And what does she say? I can't go before the king unless he summons me. If I go before the king and he doesn't summon if I go in there and he doesn't hand that scepter out to me, it's all over. But what does Esther say? If I perish, I perish. This is something I must do for my people. And therefore, she takes, she, she takes that step of faith, uh, trust that God will take care of her and get her through her circumstance. And of course, we all know the story. Haman is hung on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. God is not taken by surprise by these unavoidable circumstances that pop up in our lives. In fact, oftentimes he orchestrates them to prepare us for, uh, to be used for his honor and his glory. So when we consider these examples, it should encourage us to remain faithful to our God when we are faced with difficult <clears throat> and unavoidable circumstances in our life. Romans 8.28 and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. I love that verse. I, I often 
uh, go to that verse when I find myself in a difficult circumstance because I know that God will get me through it. He's faithful. He, all things work together for good. One guy once said, anything that is outside of our control, we can leave to the providence of God. Just trust the Lord. Let Him deal with it. I also want you to see uh, in this first point here, an unsuspecting Caesar. An unsuspecting Caesar. Who is this Caesar Augustus? You know, we see here in verse 1, and it came to pass in the days there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus. Who is Caesar Augustus? Well, i got a little information for you. Caesar Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. He was a brilliant leader. He ruled from 27 B.C. to A.D. 14. And he was responsible for establishing the first firefighting and police forces in Rome. That was new to me. I didn't know that. That was really cool. He commanded an army of 170,000 men, and he was responsible for maintaining all the Roman roads throughout the entire empire. At this time in history, he is the most important, or most uh, powerful man on the earth. The Roman Empire is at, you know, it's, it's, it's still growing at this point, I believe. So, but isn't it amazing? Isn't, oh, and not only that, but keep in mind that Caesar Augustus was worshipped as a god by all true Romans. That he was not only Caesar, but in their eyes, he was a god. But isn't it amazing how the one true god can use a god for his own benefits to accomplish his will? That's the, the, the amazing, that that's the, demonstrates the, the sovereignty of our God. Proverbs 21 verse 1 tells us, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. Caesar Augustus was being used by God to accomplish God's will. Now, like I said, I'm, we're not puppets on a string, but God can get his will accomplished one way or another. And in this point, he uses this decree that Caesar Augustus put out. So the first detail dealt with a prophetic order. Now I want you to see a planned place. A planned place. Look at verses 3 through 5. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, into the city of David, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. So we see a planned place. Because of this decree, Mary and Joseph had to leave Nazareth, traveled nearly 100 miles into, uh, to, to go to Bethlehem. While Mary is nine months pregnant. Uh, it doesn't seem like a really convenient time to be doing this. But this is all part of God's plan. And as A.T. Pearson once stated, he said, history is his story. See, this, again, I stated, this is all true, this is all happened, okay? We're, you know, I would love to go down to Israel and, and see uh, Joseph and Mary's trail. I think that's more important than the Lewis and Clark trail. I would love to walk on the trail to see what it was that Mary had to go through for nearly 100 miles just so that they could be in Bethlehem before the baby uh, Jesus could be born. So it's his story. Acts 15, 18 says, 
Known unto God are all his works from, beginning, from the beginning of the world. See, God, nothing takes him by surprise. God knows the ending from the beginning. He sees it all. He knows all. He sees the whole timeline. He's looking down on us. We see what we see now, but he sees what's to come, what will happen, and uh, how every, he, he knows the whole, uh, the whole story. So, we see a planned place. And in this planned place, in verse 4, I want you to see a prophesied town. There is a prophesied town. As shown earlier, Bethlehem is the prophesied town. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. Uh, we just see here in John 7, verse 42, Hath not the Scripture said that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? So we know that this is uh, where he was to be born. I also want you to see it is a provisional town. Uh, also here in verse 4, um, Talking about Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a town of great agricultural provision. This town provided food for the surrounding regions through its crops and livestock. The actual word Bethlehem means uh, house of bread. I thought that was interesting. House of bread. So ultimately what we see is, what is Bethlehem? Bethlehem is the house of bread. It provides bread to uh, the nation of Israel and surrounding regions. So isn't it ironic that it is about to provide the bread of life to the entire world? To the entire world. John 6, 32-35, Jesus called himself the bread of life. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not the bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Putting your faith and trust, Jesus is the bread of life. He is life everlasting. You will never hunger again. He is, you know, the living water. You will never thirst again, because if you have Jesus in your heart, you will live for all of eternity. So quickly, this morning, we've looked at a prophetic order and a planned place. Now, I want us to see this last detail, and this is the most important detail of the three. This detail is that of the perfect Savior. A perfect Savior, verses 6 and 7. <coughs> and so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. A perfect Savior. To this point, we see that a decree brought Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. And now that they, were, that they had arrived, there's no place, there's no room. There's no place for them to go. There's no uh, room at the inn, as we often hear, is what the verse states. So with all avenues exhausted, they find themselves in a stable, which was likely a cave used to house animals. This is where the Savior of the world would be born. <coughs> so I want you to see um, in this third point about a perfect Savior, I want you to see the presentation. In verse 7, it says, uh, first part of verse 7, and, he brought forth her first, and she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Uh, this is a very humble presentation. This is a very humble beginning 
for our Lord and Savior. For the one who's to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he's born in a stable. He is born in filthy conditions. A stable houses animals. He, uh, he's born in a stable, not in a hospital. Hospitals are, are prepared for this type of thing. My daughter right now having a baby, everything's sanitary that they're using. Uh, nothing was sanitary in a stable. Why did it have to be why? Why such a humble beginning? Because Jesus wants all of us to know that salvation is for all. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords, but He is not simply coming for those who are wealthy and powerful. He came to save everyone. Who were the first people told of the coming Messiah? Shepherds, the lowest of the low of their day. Shepherds were looked down upon. But the angel of the Lord came to the shepherds and told them that their Messiah was born. Their Messiah. Because He was for all. So that's what you need to understand. It's so important that we understand this whole idea that Jesus is the Son of Mary and the Son of God. Okay? He's laid in a manger... There's Mary and there's Joseph, and people are coming there. They're seeing this baby, and they see, oh, there's mom and dad. But it's not mom and dad. It's mom and the man who's going to raise him for the Lord. But Jesus is the son of Mary, and therefore she was, he was born of a virgin. This, became, this means Jesus is man. But he was laid in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit, which makes him the Son of God. 100% man, 100% God. He is God in the flesh. 1 Timothy 3.16 says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of the angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up into glory. Jesus is unlike anyone who has ever lived because He is God incarnate. He is God incarnate. Jesus did not become a God. You must understand this. There are people who teach this. People that teach that we all can become a God one day. The Mormon religion teaches that Jesus is essentially the God of this world, but He was a man in another world. And that when Mormons die, men die, they will become a God of their own world one day. Thou shalt worship no other gods or put no other gods before me? I doubt God's going to create more gods if you're not supposed to have any other gods before him. But they're not the only ones. The Mormons, the Hindus teach that through karma we become gods. In Hinduism, it's karma. And ultimately through karma, they become a god. There's even a New Age movement that teaches that there is a spark of divine in each and every one of us. A spark of divine in each and every one of us. The only person that's ever had, human person that's ever had a spark of divine in them was Mary. Okay? But we do have a spark of divine when we get saved because we have the Holy Spirit living in us. But that's not a spark. That should be a consuming fire. That we should be uh, on fire for God and living for Him. 
But ultimately what I want you to see from these other religions, and these are probably not the only three, or only ones, but what, what are they trying to say? That man is inherently good. Man is inherently good, therefore you will one day become a god. But Scripture teaches us otherwise. There is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Uh, Paul said, called himself the chiefest of all sinners. We, we know that the, the heart is only evil continually. It takes the Holy Spirit to indwell our heart to defeat the blackness that's in it. So let me make it clear. Jesus is not a man who became God. Jesus is God who became man. And that's the miracle of the gift. Colossians 2.9 tells us, For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now I want you to see the picture. Let's look at the picture. We see the presentation. Now look at the picture. Still part here, still in 7a. <clears throat> I want you to see that he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. These swaddling clothes that Jesus was wrapped in as a baby are similar to the linen strips that the Jewish people used to bury their dead. It's similar to those that, that they used to bury their dead. So what's the picture? Do you see the picture? Do you see the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? He didn't come to rule and reign. Not then. He came to die. He came to die, and that's the picture we see. He's wrapped in swaddling clothes, wrapped in clothes, much like what he would be wrapped in after the crucifixion and laid in a tomb, a borrowed tomb. Matthew 1, 21 says, And she shall bring forth a son, and sh thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. This is why Jesus came, to die, so that we could be saved from our sins. Because he is the only spotless lamb that could be presented to God the Father. That's why Jesus became man. He became a man so that he could die. God can't die. Well, if God can't die, then how did Jesus die? Because he became a man. It's the man Jesus who died. Philippians 2, verse 5 through 8, really explains it all. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, because he was, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And it says, made in the likeness of man. And you'll hear people say, oh, see, he was created. No, no, no. He was made in the likeness of men. But he couldn't be created because he was already in the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Lastly, I want you to see the problem. Let's look at the problem here. In the last part of verse 7, it says, because there was no room for them in the end. In the end. There was no room for them in the end. Here lies, herein lies the biggest problem. The problem that we all face today. The, the problem here is there was no room in the end for Jesus. And that's no different for us today. There's no room in our hearts for Jesus in this world today. <clears throat> the 
Many people today have no room for Jesus in their lives. Uh, we can see it, just look at the direction of our nation. We see what's going on in the world today. And you see people that have no room for Jesus. They don't have time for Jesus. They don't want Jesus. Here we are on Sunday morning and the pews are mostly empty because people don't have time for Jesus. They're busy sleeping in today. We don't have time uh, for Jesus. Uh, I want you to see <clears throat> there are many people that don't have room for Jesus in their hearts. The material man has no room. The material man has no room. Why? Because materialism makes it hard. Uh, if, if, you're, if you're filling yourself and your life up with all your material desires and wants and needs, there's no room for Jesus. You, you know, it's, it's like your heart is, is, is no different than a storage shed. If you, if you have a storage shed and you need to store some important things in it, uh, but you start throwing manure in it first and fill it up with manure, there isn't a whole lot of room for all the stuff you needed the storage shed for in the first place. And that's really what we're doing with our hearts. We're filling it with manure. Because that's what, what are these material items that we have? We can't take them with us to heaven. I've never seen a U-Haul behind a hearse. Uh, the nation of Egypt proved us to uh, proved it to us that you can't take your stuff with you into the afterlife. All the pharaohs that they've ever dug up, all their goods are still right there for anybody else to enjoy. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? There's no room for Jesus. <clears throat> with the material man, but also I want you to see the intellectual man has no room. <clears throat> the intellectual man has no room. These are people who are full of pride, full of intelligence. Uh, they don't need Jesus because they know it all already. They know that Jesus isn't really God, and, and they know that uh, you know there, the, there are those who believe that this is the only life you live. This is it. And you die... And there's nothing. It's just darkness, blackness, nothing. They know it all already. Uh, everything that we tell you about Jesus is foolishness to them. What does the Bible tell us about these types of people? 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 through 24. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. But unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of the world, of this world? Hath not God made foolishness the wisdom of this world? See, what they count as wisdom is just foolishness to God. For after that, the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. See, they don't know God because of their own wisdom, of worldly wisdom. But uh, it pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. That's how they come to know God. That's how they come to know Jesus, through the preaching. It's through the foolishness of preaching, he says here. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
So that's where they call it foolishness. But ultimately, we know that we preach Christ crucified because that's where true salvation comes from. Jesus gave his life on the cross of Calvary so that we could have eternal life. And if you choose to reject it, then you get to suffer the consequences of your decisions. And lastly, I want you to see the religious man has no room. There's no room in the religious man. These people are full of their religion, but have no room for Jesus. Religion doesn't save us, people. It's not religion that saves us. I'm proud to be a Baptist. I was just recently listening to a message that I, I heard Pastor Paul Chapel preach. We were watching it, and I love what he said in the message. He said, I was Baptist born, Baptist bred, and one day I'll be Baptist dead. And that's a proud Baptist right there, I'm going to tell you. But I love what he said right after that. But I don't trust in being a Baptist for my salvation. I trust in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Being a Baptist isn't what gets you to heaven. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's trusting Him and believing Him and believing with your heart. It's not a sinner's prayer that gets you to heaven. It is a relationship with Jesus Christ. You can pray a million prayers from, for, for throughout your life. They mean nothing if you don't truly believe with your heart that Jesus died, rose again in fulfillment of the Scriptures for your sins. Religion doesn't save us. Uh, and if you don't believe it, look at the Jews. How many Jews, I mean, they were firm in their religion. Many of them, the Pharisees, many of those Pharisees who followed the rules super, super close are not in heaven because they were so focused on the rules and so focused on their religion of being a good Jew that they missed out on having a relationship with Jesus Christ right when he was in their midst. John 5, 17 and 18 says, But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was, a fa was his father, making himself equal with God. See, what's funny about that is they wanted to kill him because he was doing good works on the Sabbath. They're so focused on the rules, the law, then they miss out that there's Messiah standing right in front of them to deliver them. And they missed it. John 1.11 says, He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. He came unto His own, and His own received Him not. Jesus was a Jew. He came to the Jews. And they missed it. Many of them missed it. Not all of them, but many of them. So this morning I want you to see Jesus is the perfect gift of God's love to the people of this world. The question is, what will you do with this great gift that God gave to each and every one of us through His Son? What will you do with that gift? If you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, won't you receive that gift now? There's no better time than the present to receive Jesus in your heart and get saved. If you have received this precious gift, then it is up to you to love the gift. Do you love the gift? Do you love Jesus? Jesus says in Scripture, He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Are you obeying the, uh, you know, it's, again, it's, it's about a relationship with Jesus. It's not following every rule to the letter, but are you being obedient to His leading and guiding in your life? 
So will you love the gift? We also need to make sure we share the gift. Are you sharing the gift? This is the gift that keeps on giving. This is the gift that we should all, we don't hoard it to ourselves and keep it. We should be sharing it and telling others about Jesus Christ so they too can experience what we have. And finally, we all need to make sure we worship the gift. That we worship the gift. We don't worship the package or the programs of this church or of the church. We must worship Jesus because He is worthy. Matthew 2.11 says, And when they were come into the house, they saw the, ch- the young child and Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So this coming new year, let us bring our gifts to God. Let, let's make 2023 a year where we present our gifts to Jesus. Let's bring, uh, the, and let's make that the gift of worship. With every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to offer a moment of invitation. Every head bowed, every eye closed, no looking around. I just want to take a quick second here. Uh, if you're here this morning, you've never trusted Jesus. You've never asked Jesus into your heart.